Hello, you're listening to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favourite places to eat and drink. With special thanks to the independent publisher Unbound, on this episode we bring you The Booking Club Live, with me, Jack Aldane, and cartoonist and author Martin Rousen at Yum Yum in Stoke Newington. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this, the Booking Club Live from Yum Yum, Stoke Newington's best-known, best-loved Thai restaurant. I'm Jack, the host and producer of the Booking Club, and beside me is man of the hour, cartoonist and author Martin Rousen, who I'll be turning to in just a moment. But before I do, I just want to say a big thank you to all of you, not just for giving up your Sunday afternoon for this, but for putting your hard-earned bob towards Rogue's Gallery, the book we'll be discussing today. Now, Martin, the last time you and I spoke on the Booking Club podcast, it was about, I think, 2019. And as per the MO of the podcast, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, I take authors and commentators out to their favorite restaurants. And on that occasion, we went to a place called Mon Plaisir on uh, Seven Dials near Covent Garden. That's, that's, is, that's because my favorite restaurant had just been closed down. That's right. Yeah, you can tell us all about that in a second, actually, because <laughs> I was listening back to the episode, The Gay Huzar, Rest in Peace. But a uh, wonderful restaurant um, with some litigation involved, which you still may not be able to go into. Actually, oh, I can, I can, I can tell okay, you. Okay, very good. Um, but there we spoke about what the age of the internet has done to the art of political cartoon satire, and not least of all, social media. And of course, we have heard a lot about this in the press recently with Twitter and the takeover of Elon Musk and what that might do to Twitter. But one thing that has come out of this over the last few years has been the marvellous draw challenges that Martin has kick-started. And, and without those, we wouldn't be talking about this book today. So we'll get straight into it in just a moment. But um, let's leave aside the internet and social media. Um, let's, let's talk about a more recent humanitarian disaster, um, that being Matt Hancock, <laughs> the guy who started this whole thing. Well, um, you know, as Nietzsche said, all history is circular. It comes round on itself over and over and over again. And it's interesting that um, we started, well, I started off this whole process during the truly foul uh, 2019 general election, um, which was truly foul because we knew that Johnson was going to win and he wasn't even trying. He was hiding in fridges. He wasn't giving interviews. He was recognizing the fact that he is a narcissistic sociopath who can barely function in public uh, and uh, just thinking look at me I'll trip over my cock I'm funny vote for me and we're <laughs> dumb enough as a nation to do so um, I had one escape route which I, I'd had a previous escape route in the truly foul 2015 general election where uh, it was quite clear nobody cared about the people they were just sort of engaged in politics as a hobby if you remember um, Ed Miliband's policy rockery among many other things yes that's right the Ed Stone um, Back then, I was doing the title sequence for the movie of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. So that meant I could ignore how truly horrific the election itself was. Uh, but this time, I, I had a nice little distraction. Did anybody watch that Channel 4 series called Great about Catherine the Great, Tsarina of all Russia? No, I've seen this trailer, but I haven't seen it, no. Anyway. Anybody? The, uh, well, no? the production company got in touch with me because there is a scene in which she introduces a printing press to the czarist court. And one of the courtiers starts producing pornographic woodcuts of the czar and the czarina. Uh, and 
they got me to mock these up. So I was spending most of the 2019 election doing imitation woodcuts of L. Fanning being fucked by a stallion, which was, you know, way to pass the time whilst ignoring the election. But then Matt Hancock suddenly emerged. And I was barely aware of Matt Hancock. I knew that he had stood against um, Boris Johnson and all the other contenders in the 2019 Tory party leadership contest uh, when I drew him without a face because he was com- so completely anonymous. I mean, who was he? A little drip. He was some kind of um, lackey of George Osborne's. And then, you know, he's, he, he's suddenly there as health secretary during the election, and he's just being really annoying because he had said these horrible things about Boris Johnson, and there he is, heel-clicking away as a typical little Tory lackey. But the problem was I didn't know how to draw him. And sometimes that, is a, that, that can be a major, a major issue for a caricaturist because caricature is at the heart of the profession uh, of any political cartoonist. If you can't draw the prime minister, basically you can't work anymore. And it's very fortunate that Liz Truss lasted for as short a time as she did because my friend and colleague Steve Bell really couldn't draw Liz Truss. <laughs> Do you cartoonists call each other up when you have these moments? Well, what we do is we we steal off each other. We sort of look over each other's shoulders. We can't draw it sufficiently like um, the other person. But if you think of the two people who would be the easiest to draw in politics over the last 30 years, you'd probably think it would be Ken Clark and Ed Miliband. Um, And in fact, both of them were the most difficult to draw because you don't know where to start and you don't know where to finish. There's too much going on. And, um, And certainly with Ken Clark, I was aware of the fact that we were all actually looking over each other's shoulders to pick up on hints of how you got the particular droopiness in his eyes and things like that. Anyway, Matt Hancock, how the hell am I going to draw Matt Hancock? And I just, I was bored one afternoon. So I just sort of thought, well, here's Twitter. I've got sort of 26,000 followers or something. Um, Everybody's hating this whole thing. Let's have a bit of a laugh. Let's see what happens if I challenge people to draw Matt Hancock. Uh, And they duly did to my surprise and delight lots of people duly did and i can see my friend tom johnston sitting at the back here who i've known since i don't know you're about 15 or something like that something like that he's been sending me stuff for quite a long time and he drew a, a, an image of matt hancock which uh, contained i think anal polyps as well as various other things i mean it was seen from behind viewed from behind i mean it was one of the most extraordinarily disgusting images i've ever seen in my life and it was fantastic it's absolutely brilliant and all these and i knew about tom's work previously but there were other people who i'd never heard of whose work i'd never seen because you know you can't see everything although you've got this constant stream of information pouring past you all the time on all media there's no way anybody can actually consume all of it but suddenly a lot of people who were really, really talented cartoonists and caricaturists, started producing stuff. And in fact, the winner, and I'm going to show it to us uh, now just to remind you, the winner was Colm Campbell, who writes under the, um, or draws, is a Northern Irish cartoonist, draws under the nom de plume of nothing. And um, I just thought this was absolutely phenomenal. And it does what caricature should do. Caricature should be like a parable. It should, it should actually capture the nature of the person and as David Lowe said when he was drawing when when he drew Albert Einstein from the life in the 1920s and Einstein said this doesn't look anything like me said it looks more like you than you do (laughs) and I thought thank god for that because I then started stealing the way Colm draws draws Matt Hancock and and I've been doing it ever since and refining it slowly as Picasso said mediocre artists borrow great artists steal so you always steal and after I did that one, people really loved it. So they said, can we have another one? So I thought, let's draw Dominic Raab. 
and got a great Dominic Raab. And then the plague hit, and suddenly an awful lot of people had an awful lot of time on their hands, stuck indoors, and the thing really developed a, a kind of momentum of its own. And there were a lot of people who sort of contacted me off piste, as it were, saying, you know, well, thank God this has kept me sane. Mm -hmm. This has kept me going, just sort of getting my rage and fury and hatred for these fuckers. Throughout the lockdowns, whenever I saw the hashtag draw, I thought yeah. something good is going to come of this. Um, out on a piece of paper. But also there, there were, um, there's a couple who live up in Kendall who just saw the draw challenge and they, they produce these beautiful tableaus with plasticine figures in them. Oliopia, they yes. call themselves. As a retired builder and his wife who's a retired child psychologist and they just saw this challenge, they followed me on Twitter and they just looked at their children's plasticine and started creating this stuff. And I felt, when, when I met them um, last year at the Lakes International Cartoon Art Festival, the way they were talking about it I suddenly felt like John Ruskin about the redemptive power of art. <laughs> uh, and I genuinely believe that. I, I think, I think this, is, this is good for... It. It's not only good for us, it's good for the people we're drawing because it keeps them in their place. It reminds them that we actually think they're a bunch of arseholes. And however much they think they have power and they can play these political games... An awful lot of people think they're a bunch of ourselves, mm -hmm. And that's good for them. Otherwise, they've got their gods. Yeah. As you said in our last conversation, it's about showing people who would have us believe that they are gods, that they are just metabolizing beings who shit and are going to die. The yeah. same the yeah. The, yeah. as yeah. with the rest exactly. of us. As we um, go through these, there are three of these prints selected from the mass of stuff that, that was submitted during the draw challenges. I'm just going to pass this round and uh, give you all sort of an up-close look at the uh, the detail. And they get they get more and more disgusting as we go. <laughs> If you think that's bad. Um, when it came to receiving these at first, what was your initial reaction at just the, the volume? Because I remember thinking, gosh, this is going to be great. This is almost like putting wheels on a suitcase. It's just going to accelerate the pace and the turnout of stuff that we never knew was there before. When did you know that you had something here that you could turn into a I gallery, mean, essentially? I, I, th I, think, I think it was the, th the third one. So by January... Yeah, because at, at Christmas 2019... I think we'd, ha we'd had Hancock, and I think we'd had Rob. And so I said, well, you know, draw, draw something nice for Christmas. It's the only one that failed completely. <laughs> Absolutely failed completely. There were about 12 entries. Um, and the wonderful Bert O'Hara, whatever name she is using at the moment, um, who I'm sure you'll know, um, she, she submitted a, a really nice one, which was of a, a cat basically destroying a child under a Christmas tree. It, it, it was the fact that it, it had its own momentum. I mean, the, the, I, wasn't, I, I mean, I was thinking we ought to have a book. I was thinking these people ought to be employed by the mainstream media. Um, but I've been thinking that about an awful lot of people for an awfully long time. And mm. I'm in the mainstream media and I have no influence whatsoever. Uh, but the way it developed a momentum thought, well, you know, a lot of people have got to notice this. So what I do was I would actually spend almost an entire day posting all the entries in batches of four, which was about the limit of my technological ca capacity and capability. Later on, uh, a friend of mine um, who prefers to remain anonymous, but she is my, she, she, think, she, she calls herself a shoe elf. She's somebody I've been corresponding, I've met once. We've never actually spoken face to face. Um, but we've maintained a very long email correspondence for the last 12 years. And um, she used to work in the media. She now lives up in the Wirral. And she started producing the, the videos. And I would choose the music. And so she's been very, very helpful. So rather than having to post all the, all the images, which would take me a day, 
she then puts them on a video so people can see them like that. Um, and they develop a life of their own. Uh, and really, I mean, it's, it's really the same way I feel about every cartoon I draw. As soon as it's published, it's got no, nothing to do with me anymore. Mm-hmm. It, has, it has to stand on its own legs. It has to either, either go viral or not go viral or be totally forgotten or linger in somebody's memory or something like that. Um, the fact that this completely accidental movement, let's call it that, um, got the legs it did, was, I, I genuinely think, bottom-up driven by the people who were drawing. And they were drawing because they wanted to draw. It wasn't driven by a market. It wasn't driven by the people who wanted to see the stuff, although people loved seeing it. It was driven precisely because people wanted to do that wonderful and extraordinary thing human beings do, which is to take the reality that constantly pours through their organs of perception and wrangle it into something which said the thing they wanted to say Mm. by filtering it through their consciousness onto a piece of paper, which is what I do. You know, um, people have said, who are you drawing for? And obviously the answer is I'm drawing for myself. Um, My friend and colleague Steve Bell would say, I'm drawing for the money. And he'd be quite right about that as well. (laughs) But these people weren't. These people weren't drawing for the money. They were drawing for the joy of drawing, actually. A cartoonist very much in the mainstream media who I'm a real admirer of is uh, Ben Jennings. Everything he produces blows my mind because of the way in which he manages to say so succinctly and powerfully everything he wants to say. And I think that, again, when we go onto these platforms, be it Twitter, Facebook, whatever, and we see so many words being hurled as missiles, just to catch a moment in which a cartoonist says nothing, nothing verbally, nothing written, and just lays an image. And for a moment there, you're just stopped in your tracks because they said it all, and they said it all so perfectly. And one of Jennings's recent ones was a, a coffin-shaped football table. It just said everything. And, and, it's, and it, you know, it's, it's one of those privileges that cartoonists have. I mean, if, if, if let, why not, we're among friends, let's, let's get into the depths of what this is all about. Um, I always thought it was really interesting. Here we are, probably in the last days of Britain, as a, as a <laughs> geopolitical concept, before it's finally thrown away by the Tories. And of course, it started off, the, the Britain we think we understand Britain to be, was, was more or less created by the philosopher John Locke, who inspired the glorious revolution of 1688, inspired the British Enlightenment, um, you know, created the constitution, which is crumbling to pieces in front of our eyes. Um, and it's interesting that I studied Locke quite carefully when I did a comic book version of Tristram Shandy, the great 18th century nonsensical anti-novel novel and the two things he distrusted and hated more than anything else were the visual and laughter <laughs> says it That's all it's the british enlightenment for you folks <laughs> it's written down and you're not allowed to snigger um mm. and it's interesting that the most powerful critique critics in a critique of the of the enlightenment of the age of reason are Jonathan Swift and Hogarth because they're portraying this society which is meant to be based on reason and decency and of course Hogarth said when people said you know why have you written this terrible vast fourth book of um, Gulliver's Travels well you're such a horrible misanthrope and everything and, and he wrote to Alexander Pope and said it's not me that hates humankind it is vous outre you hate mankind because you would have him a rational creature and are disappointed when he turns out not to be and of course the whole point about um, the rake's progress Hogarth's second great modern moral tale was that unlike in the harlot's 
progress, or most other Hogarthian modern moral tales where the hero or heroine dies of syphilis, on this occasion, the rake ends up in Bedlam, a kind of living hell. So it's about the madness, the under, underside is the madness. And the way Hogarth portrayed that was different from his contemporaries who would always incorporate words into their prints. And he didn't. He deliberately made it dumb play, dumb show, um, that you had to deal with the visual. Now, those of you who've heard me go on about this before, forgive me for saying it again, but it's worth remembering that the oldest known human drawing is 45,000 years old. It's of a pig, it's on a wall of a cave in Indonesia. 45,000 years old. That is 40,000 years before the invention of writing. And writing was invented after they created the first states and the first hierarchies, which had kings at the top of them, and they had storing houses, and they had temples. So you had a religious state nexus, uh, which was basically about forcing people to hand over the fruits of their labours to the central controlling elite. And writing was invented so you could make a list of people who had paid their tithes and paid their taxes and then make a list of people who hadn't so you could have them executed. So writing is about theft and murder. Drawing is about taking what's inside your head and inside your heart and actually putting it out on a piece of paper so you can share it with all the people around you who are navigating their way through their lives just like you are. Which is why drawing is what people do. It's what we do really well. Jumping, drawing, jokes and genocide. It's what human beings excel at. <laughs> I recall a lot of the entrance to the draw challenges were of people sort of saying like, yeah, you know, I'm not much of a drawer and yeah, I know this isn't really art. And every time you would always respond sort of saying, no, this is brilliant. I mean, when people say I can't draw, is that something that you flatly reject based on what you said there about the fact that this is something we all do? Yeah, no, I, I, do, I do flatly reject it because because, uh, again, we get back to John Ruskin, um, who said that drawing isn't about drawing, drawing is about looking. And I have a caricature workshop, which I, I do quite regularly, where I get, I get people just to sit around, you know, opposite each other on a table, and they have to look at each other. And what I always start them out by doing is to break their will by saying, look, I'm going to ask you to do something which will be the most uncomfortable thing you've probably ever done in your lives. I want you to look at the person sitting opposite you, who I hope is a total stranger, and I want you to look at them for three minutes with an intensity you would normally reserve to somebody you either love or somebody you are about to hit. <laughs> and after 30 seconds, the nervous laughter starts. Um, because it is something we're not meant to do. We're not meant to look at each other like that, which is, you know, gets us even deeper into things about prohibitions on representation of human features, um, about the fact that I've, throughout my career, 40-year career almost, have always been receiving death threats from people who object to me even depicting the objects of their veneration, whether it's a political leader or a god. The fact that, you know, you're not even allowed to look at us. You're not allowed to look at us or draw us or anything like that. It's weird shit, basically. <laughs> you give... I'm sure some advice to somebody who comes along saying, look, I really want to improve on the way that I caricature. How many tips or pointers have you been able to give? I mean, looking at this one in front of us, it always seemed to me that to master the eyes of somebody, to master, to use that old cliche, the window to the soul, that would give you the rest of them quite easily. Well, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, it is, you, you capture the eyes, windows to the soul. I mean, it, I had a dark night of the soul in 2016 when Theresa May became prime minister when I was drawing her, because I'd drawn her a bit, but not very much. And you don't know when you've got them until you've got them. It's a really weird kind of alchemy. 
And I was drawing her for illustrate Kevin Maguire's column in the Daily Mirror, which I do every week. And I, I realised it wasn't her. It, I hadn't quite got her. And I thought, Jesus Christ, my career is over. I can't draw the Prime Minister. And then I dropped her eye mm. fractionally down her mm. face, and it was her. And I don't know how that happens. I don't know how I was able to do that. But you know when you've got them, when you have to coin a phrase, your hand up their soul. <laughs> and, uh, and then you can use them as marionettes and glove puppets to set them up in a satirical narrative of your own devising. Um, eyes as the windows of the soul, absolutely true, except in the case of two of my absolute favourite cartoonists, Ronald Searle and my friend and colleague Morton Morland, who is without question the best cartoonist working in this country at the moment. And for them, the shoe is the window to the soul. The way they draw, shoe, the way they draw yeah. shoes is absolute indication of the, the, the personality of the person <laughs> they're drawing. We talked in our last conversation as well about the shamanistic aspect of caricature, the fact that you are, as you say, putting your hand up the soul and you're dragging it out of the body and you're, you're turning it and spinning it into something else. You've made political leaders, prime ministers, cabinet ministers into farm animals. You've turned them into objects. But uh, there are other prints to show. And it, what you're saying brings to mind the next caricature we're about to, uh, to reveal. Well, we're doing these in, in order of disturbingness. Um, and this was the Michael Gove challenge, the draw Michael Gove challenge. And, and, and Michael Gove is interesting because when he sort of first really emerged as a national politician in 2010, I, 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 I hadn't got him. I hadn't got him right. And it coincided with um, that summer... Um, Steve Bell was away for six weeks and I was working on a book so I couldn't cover for him and I was thinking how the hell are we going to do this so we actually invited six previously unpublished cartoonists to do a day each for six weeks um, and one of them was Ben Jennings one of them was a guy called Nick Hayes, who you may know of, who has written a fantastic book called The Book of Trespass. That's right. And I, I, I managed, I mean, one of the things, if I've done anything in my life, it is, to, it is to corrupt Nick Hayes, who, when I first met him, was quite interested in cartooning, but he was sort of thinking about doing some graphic novels, and I politicised him. He said, what do you mean? I mean, you know, all this anarchism stuff. What, I mean, how can we function if we don't have a government? And I said, well, there's all sorts of reasons why we shouldn't have a government. Look at land ownership. And then the next thing I know, he's spending all this time trespassing the land of major landowners and That's leading right. land rights movement in this country. But he, in one of the drawings he did in 2010, was of Gove. And he got the thing about, he got the Goveness of Gove, which is the fact that he doesn't have binocular vision. He has eyes on the side of his head like a rabbit. And that is the point about Gove. And you need to, with Gove, you need to take the eyes as far as you possibly can while they're still believably inside a skull. And there you've got Gove. Yeah. And, and I wanted to see how people would deal with that, beyond the fact that Gove is one of the most irritating little squits who ever drew breath. And I knew that it would appeal to the basic nastiness in the people who were engaged in this process. And here we actually move away from drawing. And what I've been saying throughout this process is you do whatever you like. If you don't feel comfortable with drawing or you don't think you can caricature, use what, whatever medium you like. And an awful lot of people would send in collages. A lot of people would send in rather wonderful objet trouvé, like a sort of surrealist. They'd find a, a, a knot of wood that looked like Theresa May, yeah. which was great. And this is from a pro. This is from a guy called Mike Stocker, who's a great cartoonist, great little gag cartoonist, works for private... Are art. you ready for this? He's ready for this. And he, this came to him in a dream. And this is his torso. And that is Michael Gove. I think 
possibly one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen in my life. Um, I, shall I describe it for the readers or the, the listeners? Well, I was going to say, listeners have been spared these awful images, but you might as well for their sake. Well, what it is, it's, it's, it's Mike took a, a photograph of his own naked torso, superimposing Gove's nose in, you know, between, in the middle of his chest, his lips uh, around his navel and rather heavy paunch, with um, a pair of glasses over his nipples. It's, it, I mean, you know, it, it's quite extraordinary. I think we should hand it round so people can look at it, <laughs> the full horror of that. Um, I should say that I uh, spoke to Nick Hayes at the end of 2020 when he was uh, on a houseboat trespassing. Yep. Uh, we weren't able to meet in person because of COVID restrictions. Couldn't go out and do what he had planned, which was to have an open fire meal, which would have been lovely to do. And I don't actually know where he is right now. He probably still is trespassing, isn't I, he? But- I, I, I sent him a, a message a couple of weeks ago saying, have you come in from the hedges yet? But, yes. I, haven't, but I haven't heard back. <laughs> Have any of the people you've ever caricatured, I know there have been some, Alistair Campbell is one example you told me about from the Gay Hussar that we said we were going to come back to. How many of these public figures have ever sort of approached you and and taken issue with something that you've drawn of them or or even just wanted to compliment you and sort of say like, yeah, fair cop? It it always used to be the case that um, politicians would buy an awful lot of cartoons. They would always say, oh, they're terribly funny. I remember I, I once drew Anne Widdicombe from the life for a short-lived series I had in The Spectator where I was drawing people who were... You couldn't quite tell whether they were national jokes or national treasures. And um, I would draw them and interview them at the same time. And, you know, I quite like Anne Widdicombe. We disagree about absolutely everything, probably including breathing, actually. (laughs) But um, I quite like her. She does what she does. She is Anne Widdicombe. As I was drawing, I said, you know, so, so what do you feel about the people like me spending all our time drawing you in these horrible ways oh it's all just jolly good fun isn't it it's just jolly good fun i mean it's such a laugh i said no no Anne, it's not jolly good fun it's it's voodoo it's doing damage to distance with a sharp object you know this is assassination without the blood we are literally trying to destroy you through through sympathetic magic oh no 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 well of course you'd have to think that because otherwise you'd go mad thinking that somebody like me would hate her so much i would draw her like that which i don't i quite like her but I but she's a public figure and therefore it is part of our democratic freedoms for us to laugh at our public figures uh, which is why in unfree countries of which there are very many leaders like Erdogan or the prime minister of Malaysia uh, or Putin or other people lots of long long list of people um, great leaders strong men who cannot bear to be drawn or depicted in any way whatsoever the most heartening thing I heard in 2019 was when I interviewed this dissident Chinese cartoonist who uses the name Badiao Shao because it's a meaningless series of noises because he needs to disguise his identity because his family's still in China, who, when he was a student in Melbourne in about 2010, got a video of a superhero movie, which broke down halfway through because it was a pirate video, and underneath was a, was a, a documentary about Tiananmen Square, of which he had never heard. He knew nothing about that. Found out about it, started doing cartoons about the Chinese communist leadership. And it was he who first drew President Xi as Winnie the Pooh. And as a consequence, Winnie the Pooh yeah. is now banned in China. Yes. And <laughs> I said to him when I interviewed him at Tate Modern, um, so what's it, feel, what's, what's it feel like knowing that the second most powerful man in the world has banned a quarter of humanity from following the adventures of this f- honey-loving bear of very little brain? How does it feel knowing that the second most powerful man in the world is actually frightened of you? And he said, it's great. 
And it is. These people are, are, are clowns. They're fools. They're, they're imbeciles. They think they're gods because they are so morally and physically and spiritually inadequate. Uh, and it is our job to remind them of this. I want to talk about the future of the craft, where you think it's going. I mean, clearly the draw challenges have shown that there is no dearth, there is no lack of talent out there. But how do aspiring political cartoonists keep the faith or, or find ways in which to share their work and to, and to make a living out of it? It's never been easy, it's but, no, it's, but, but there's, there has to be some future to it because it's all too valuable for us to simply... It's one of those things I was saying earlier on, you know, we human beings tell jokes as well as committing genocide. But, um, and we do that as an evolutionary survival mechanism because otherwise we'd go insane with existentialist terror. If we didn't laugh at shit, every time we had a shit, we'd think, oh my God, what's this stuff pouring out of my body on a daily basis? And we'd top ourselves at the age of four. You know, we just wouldn't be able to cope with it. So we laugh at it, and we laugh at death, and we laugh at our friends, and we laugh at our enemies, and we laugh at our leaders, and we have done. But satire is coterminous with us living in a society with hierarchies. Um, otherwise, we would go insane or slaughter our leaders on a daily basis. And cartoons are a part of that. Cartoons and caricature are a part of that. I always think the oldest caricature is actually 35,000 years old and it's of a rhinoceros in the Chauvet cave system and it has a, a horn so large it would have fallen flat on its nose had it been alive so they exaggerated it they you know that's what you do you exaggerate things to make the point and you then build on that to make it funny and so on as you say this whole process entirely accidental has proved that um, there is an enormous wealth of talent I mean, people whose work I'd otherwise never have seen. People like, and he's in the audience here, Kevin Wells, Squiggle King, who is an absolutely extraordinarily talented man as a caricaturist. I've never seen the like of, of the stuff he does. It's absolutely breathtaking. At Squiggle King, very much recommend that you follow him. Fantastic cartoonist. It's good to have you here, Kevin. Kevin, is it all right if I say what your current job is? You can, yeah. Yeah, and, and Kevin is currently a prison officer, <laughs> whereas he should be doing the lead caricature in The New Yorker every week. Um, and that's down to the cowardice and stupidity and imbecility of editors like my friend Peter Jukes who's sitting in the front row here <laughs> my editor at Byline Times um, and I'm doing my best um, at The Guardian uh, where I I think I'm now the lead cartoonist because I do a, about a quarter of a cartoon more than the other cartoonists but we, we're now in a sort of we're, we're now getting to where I wanted it to be when I first started working for them mm. almost 30 years ago where it's actually a job share so it's right. divided between me and Steve Bell and Ben Jennings and Nicola Jennings no relation um, but I've given up one of my slots a month uh, as a place specifically to showcase new talent people who've never worked on those pages before, some of whom have never worked in newspapers before. And Pete Sonji, who's also here, who's a brilliant cartoonist. It's actually one of the most driven cartoonists I know because you actually draw one every day, don't you? Yeah. Um, and Pete's done it a couple of times. I hope we'll be doing it again. We're just building up a sort of a, a, a body of cartoonists. Mm. But as I'm sure Pete could tell us, you don't know what it's like until you've done it. It's impossible to know how truly terrifying, but also like white water rafting, exhilarating it is to do it in real time, to hit that deadline. And also uh, Steve Lilly, another regular contributor to the Cartoon Draws, has done it. Uh, last week, when we're recording this, uh, Ben Chilcott, who's a fantastic artist, really inventive, does it all on screen. I don't know how to do that. Uh, and he's a PR man at Sellafield. Mm. And we've got um, some other 
people who haven't contributed to the draw challenge, but people who are not particularly women who are not actually being used properly in national newspapers. But of course, national newspapers have only ever had a limited number of outlets for political cartoonists. When I was, you know, in my 20s, I was moaning about this logjam of useless old men who were blocking up the available spaces. And of course, now I am one of them. Um, But the logjam shifts, something changes. Mm. I don't think newspapers are going to die. I think there is an infinite space to publish new talent it's called the internet it's called the websites of the newspapers what they need to do is to spend money on it and this is an argument i'm continuing to have i have editorial behind me i'm just trying to get management behind me to actually say okay you run why don't why not run three political cartoons a day two of them online one of them in the paper which also goes online. And you just pay these people. You don't have to pay them very much, but you pay them something. Getting paid for cartooning is one thing, but not having your work constantly ripped. And of course, you know, I've been guilty of this in promoting this. You know, I've had to use some of the work that will appear in Rose Gallery to show what people who come to this event will expect to see. But that's required a lot of copying and pasting, right? And this is part of the problem. I mean, Banksy has recently had a justifiable go at the clothing brand Guess for simply taking his stuff and and using it to promote their next clothing line. I mean, should we even go into the subject of NFTs? Nothing fucking there. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to be the sort of digital solution to taking what is freely available to I everyone. Think, you know, NFTs are, are, are a thing like Elon Musk. It's a kind of temporary eruption of blithering madness, which <laughs> this too shall pass, I think. Including Twitter? Twitter passes, something else will come along. You know, um, Samistat papers in the Soviet Union survive without yes. the official function, any kind of official status at all. It will carry on. You can't stop it. You know, the, the stonemasons were carving caricatures of the Dean and Chapter on the yeah. towers yeah. of Gothic yeah. Cathedral. Medieval manuscripts are filled with caricatures of the abbot. You know, it's, it's what we do. We need a Twitter specifically for cartoonists. I mean, one could say that Instagram is even better for cartoonists than it is for anybody who's making a living off of writing. I mean, the great thing about Instagram is it's gone very quickly before they can steal it. <laughs> Moving on to the third and last. Um, the third and last one is... Um, <laughs> I keep on saying, because I genuinely mean it, I am humbled by the people who have engaged in this process obviously because they wanted to but it's just the, the, the variety of people I already spoke about the, you know, the couple up in Kendall who were making the, the plastic models but also little Kiara up in Glasgow who's eight and a half who was always drawing she loved doing the drawings and I, I sent her a, I made her a certificate hand-drawn certificate to give to her for her birthday Lovely. sort of you know, say you have won this and uh, I think she won the draw the Olympics as they really are and it was all about poo races and things like that <laughs> <laughs> it's just fantastic. But also people have done some truly weird stuff. I mean, truly weird stuff. And, and if you cast your minds back to... And I always chose people I knew that this constituency of brilliant artists would like to draw. One of the notable failures, actually, Pete Sonji won it, was, was Gavin Williamson. Because Gavin Williamson was, you know, Pete got closest to it. It, I use the pronoun carefully. Um, because Gavin Williamson, well, I realised the other day when I saw him, you know, he's, um, he's a, a, a cosplay Francis Urquhart with the face of a spiteful rent boy. Uh, and there's nothing there. He's a little squit. So it wasn't so much fun, but 
you all had a lot of fun with Toby Young. Toby Young, I mean, honestly, language really fails. Um, but the heights, I think, I was going to say the depths, the heights to which people would go. And this was, a guy, this was from a guy called Paul Blinkhorn, who is a, an archaeologist, can't draw, didn't draw, did something much better than that. He did the only piece of actual palpable body art we've had where he shaved one of his testicles and drew Toby's face on it. <laughs> and he didn't win because, you know, we would have some sense of decency around, but I, but I, but I, I, sent, him, I sent him a copy of one of my books as a sort of runner-up, but I just... You probably don't want to have this passed around, do you? <laughs> but it was... I can pass the ball. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely in the spirit. It, we, don't, we shouldn't take this too seriously, we should, but we should take it deadly seriously because, you know, people will say, why do you make fun of things all the time? You know, why do you take nothing seriously? I say, I, I take things so seriously, I take... I, I, I get jokes out of it because laughter is what we need to be human. And... It was brilliant. And this was, this was actually the only challenge where I got any kind of kickback from mm. anyone. And it was from some Lib Dem councillor somewhere. And she said that all these drawings of Toby Young was the, absolutely the worst example of online bullying she'd ever encountered. And I replied, you know, you're talking about a man who's a self-confessed eugenicist uh, to the point where he doesn't understand that in any sensible eugenicist society, they would have bred out people who need glasses and are bald. I put my hands up on this one. Um, like Toby. Um, mm. you know, so his, his father wrote the 1945 Labour Party manifesto and his entire life has been a slow motion Oedipal fucking car crash. Uh, and Toby Young deserves absolutely everything from everybody all the time, not least of all because he runs the free speech union and he can't object to it, even though he has blocked me on Twitter. <laughs> and... And I said, you know, what are you talking about bullying? You're a Lib Dem. You were involved for five years in the worst case of class bullying this country has seen since the 1830s, for fuck's sake. At which point she blocked me on Twitter. So hooray for that. <laughs> I want to bring it to Q&A in a moment and get you all to, uh, to interact. We have a mic here that will go around. But needless to say, thanks to you all, the good people at Unbound have inched that bit closer to bringing Rose Gallery into being. And so um, we will hear in future as to how that is progressing. And, uh, and pretty soon, I'm sure there will be a copy in each of your hands ready to put on your bookshelves, perhaps in time for Christmas 2023. Who knows? But does anybody have a question to start us off? Please. Somebody asked for an explanation of the hedge on the last cartoon with the monument. And they said that the hedge must have a meaning. Does it? No. <laughs> Sometimes there is nothing there. I, actually, I tell you, um, those of you with long memories may remember I did a cartoon. When they, um, the Tories were trying to bring in the bedroom tax, I did a picture of um, George Osborne going into his spare bedroom, and it was just crammed full of things. It was completely crammed full of stuff. It had a, it had a, a triple dip diplodocus in there. It had fur cups. It had broken hamster cages with a dead hamster in it. It had all just completely crammed full of stuff. And behind the hamster cage with the dead hamster in it was a goldfish bowl with a dead goldfish floating in it. And I put it in there just to see how many people asked me what it meant. And the guy who publishes my poetry emails, what's the significance of the dead goldfish? And all about 30 people said, what's the significance of the dead goldfish? And I said, it was, the only significance was to see if you asked me what it meant. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's all. No, no, no. I mean, you can read into it what you like. As I said, when I stop doing them, when, when I have them published, they belong to you. So if you think that's a hedge fund, it might be. Who knows? Of course, feel free to introduce yourselves as you uh, start your questions. Um, yes, my, mine's a writer of reply. Peter Chooks, the editor who just defamed among <laughs> these lovely people. Uh, and so my proposition is that we're starting a new weekend supplement and maybe you could curate um, some of these great budding artists. So, and I have two questions based on that. One is, an obvious one I'm going to put, is you mentioned one woman in The Guardian and why there are so few women cartoonists coming to the public. But a second slightly le- more interesting one is, do you think since 1695, was it, or whenever it was that this, you know, the act lapsed and we had all this sort of satire coming out, that's one of the reasons why we didn't have a revolution. Like, if you look at British society, the better of angels of our nature makes this point that there were lots of preconditions for British democracy and its sort of dysfunction before it actually happened. And one was the novel. I wonder if the cartoon... No, absolutely. Um, to answer the last point first, um, Kenneth Baker, the former Tory Education Secretary, with whom I have served as a trustee of the Cartoon Museum for many years, and who I actually quite like, um, and he knows his cartoons. But he once told me a very interesting story about how the French ambassador at the Court of St. James in about 17... 85, wrote a dispatch to Versailles saying, this country is on the verge of a revolution. It'll be like it was 150 years ago. They'll chop off the king's head. All you have to do is to walk down any main street in central London. There are these kiosks selling these satirical prints of the royal family in the most disgusting and depraved scenes imaginable. It's unbelievable. And of course, he was completely and diametrically wrong, uh, because in France, they had no tradition of visual satire, certainly no tradition of licensed satire. Um, what they had instead were these Samizdat sex libels uh, about Marie Antoinette, but it was all kept under strict control, and the pressure cooker exploded, and the blood literally flowed through the streets of Paris. And, you know, there are occasionally times when I wouldn't mind a bit of blood flowing through the streets of London, and I think, no, actually, no, 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 I want assassination without the blood. Um, if we can mock them to the point where they actually can do as little harm as possible, that is much better than chopping their heads off. And that is precisely the reason, because a healthy society has room for satire. If you're so frightened of being mocked, you're obviously doing something really, really bad. And most of the people who lock up cartoonists are doing really, really bad things. As far as women cartoonists are concerned, there are legion women cartoonists. And whenever people ask me why aren't there more women cartoonists, they don't ask me, ask the people who commission them. And that's down to the laziness, the lack of commitment or whatever of, of um, newspaper commissioning editors. Also, it's down to the longevity of cartoonists because cartoonists are around for a long time, and Peter Brooks is now 80 and still going strong. Um, Boris Efimov, the cartoonist with Pravda, who got his first job on Asvestia because his brother was editor, who was then his brother was then shot by Stalin in 1937, but Boris was still drawing for Pravda when he died in 2008, um, at the age of 108. Um, Mm. They carry on for a long time. But I will take you up on your offer, Peter. I think that's an absolutely fantastic idea, because... All these guys and girls and people, all these people are drawing because they have to, because they love it. Um, My father gave me two very important pieces of advice when I was very, very young. The first one was never obey orders, including this one, 
which it took me decades to work out what that meant. And the other one was, whatever you do, avoid ever doing any work if you possibly can, by which he meant, if you can get paid for doing what you love, you've won in life. And that is true of every cartoonist I know. So it's easier than working. So if these people can have the way our culture shows its respect, which is money for their fantastic work, even better if it's your money, that would be great. Thank you. Um, Martin, Jack, thank you. I'm John Mitchinson from Unbound, founder of Unbound and um, publisher. We are going to make this book. We'll find, we'll find it. I have a cunning plan. We'll find a way of, of, of hitting our target. But thank you to everybody f- for supporting this event and coming and helping move it that bit closer to the target. The question was uh, to Martin was, um, I know that Norman Tebbit loved his spitting image puppet. In fact, asked if he could have it. He was so fond of it. And I wonder, do you, have you ever had that problem with, you know, sat, David, uh, 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 David um, Steele loathed his puppet and Roy Hattersley loathed his puppet. For, but I wonder, have you ever had that problem of a, someone who you caricatured, who, who you despise, actually falling in love with the, 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 um, the, the caricature you've made of them in a kind of an embarrassment, making you want to change it and make it even, even, even more unpleasant? Weirdly, nobody's ever told me they, well, they, they, they sort of threw gritted teeth. They sort of said, yes, very funny. Um, <laughs> but they, um, not me, but certainly many others. Um, it's, it's a weird thing. I mean, it's, I always thought it's interesting that they always hang them in their toilets. <laughs> and I say, well, why do you hang it? And you say, well, so, so everybody can see it. Well, only people who come into your house to have a shit can see it, actually. <laughs> Because if they're having, you know, I mean, isn't it a bit Freudian? Aren't you trying to flush away the bad magic? Uh, Aren't you taking possession of something so you can diffuse Mm -hmm. the potency of the bad magic because you then own it? And they won't have any of that, but it's true. I mean, that's the reason they're doing it. And, of course, the worst thing than appearing in a cartoon from a politician is not appearing in a cartoon because it means you're insufficiently important or recognisable. And that goes back centuries. Uh, Gilray was being petitioned by Canning for, for years to put Canning in one of his satirical prints, and he wouldn't do it until he was Gilray was banged up on a charge of blasphemy um, in 1795, and Canning got him off, and his um, Canning was repaid by Gilray. First of all, Gilray started doing stuff for the anti-Jacobin for the money. He also took a government pension for the money. He was a hack. Why not? And he put. After six months, six months after the trial never happened, he put Canning in the back of this magnificent Gilray print, one of my absolute favourite Gilrays, which is called Promised Horrors of the French Invasion, which shows this kind of Jacobin army marching down Pall Mall with ministers being defenestrated from the clubs and the pit the younger being whipped by Charles James Fox and the heads on spikes. And, and uh, in the background, hanging from a lamppost barely noticeable is Canning. <laughs> which is great <laughs> it's just fantastic it just puts him out here fuck you mate hanging from a lamppost um, yeah it's it's we cannot function without them to a large extent they cannot function without us and so it's a case of mind over matter they pretend they don't mind while we pretend we matter <laughs> let's put it like that 
This reminds me of the Gay Bazaar. We, we wanted to come back to this at some yeah, stage. Yeah. Um, as I recall, I remember doing a, an episode with the author Will Self uh, about his uh, latest book at the time, Phone, and uh, he remembered having his uh, caricature done in the Gay Bazaar by you. Yeah. Um, but all of those caricatures, which used to line the walls of that wonderful Hungarian restaurant, um, sort of disappeared and were kind of in quarantine or in escrow or something. They were just they were kept somewhere and you couldn't get to them. Uh, well, what, what happened... When the Gay Hussar closed on the 21st of June 2018, I was in dispute with Chorus Hotels about the ownership of these drawings, Mm. which, to explain, I had drawn over a period of five years in the early 2000s, and they were of their celebrity patrons. There are 60 of these, everybody from Michael Foote to Glenda Jackson to Alistair Campbell, and so on, and so on, and so on. And... I proposed doing these in exchange for a free meal because I just thought it would be an interesting project and, they, and I would give them on loan to hang on the walls of the restaurant. And this was done on a kind of word-of-mouth thing with the then-manager. And then Chorus Hotels claimed they owned them. Um, and I said, you don't own them, you never paid me for them. And they claimed it was ownership. And you know, this was a case of mock dispute. My wife, who was a lawyer, said, just go in there and take them off the wall. And I said, they're all screwed to the wall. There are 60 of them. This will take some time. It's not going to be a smash and grab thing. And the then manager would have endangered his redundancy payment had he not done his best to stop me. So it was just too difficult. And then they went off to a lockup somewhere in Milton Keynes. Um, I... I, I got in touch with a lawyer I knew uh, who wasn't able to do it on a no-win, no-fee basis. So I spent a certain amount of money when he sent a letter and nothing happened. And then I rang up Anthony Julius, uh, Mishkondorea, who did some stuff when I did a graphic novel version of The Wasteland in 1990 and the editor state tried to suppress it and he represented my interest very well in that. So I said, yeah, can you help me out with this? And he said, yeah, all right. And they gave me 17,000 quids worth of pro bono representation, which was basically letters going backwards and forwards. And then I paid him a bit more. And then they hit upon this brilliant idea. And, and I paid them a few, a few grand for their, for their services, but this was actually worth every single penny because it completely blew Chorus Hotels out of the water and also pissed their... Hundred thousand pounds they'd paid their in legal fees up to that point down the shitter because they got somebody to value the drawings. So there are sixty of these things, uh, and they're of a piece. They are they are a collection. And the way you traditionally value stuff, value art, is to see what it fetches at auction. And my stuff never comes up for auction. It comes up for auction if somebody bought a cartoon I did about the John Major government and they die and their executors put it on put it up for auction at the Chiswick Auction House where it'll go for thirty seven quid. And so they valued this collection, which I always said was both priceless and worthless. If you split it up and sold it to the individual sitters, get 300 each or whatever, who knows? Uh, They valued the entire collection at £1,100, by which time Chorus Hotel had spent £100,000 trying to hold on to these. So at that that point I wrote to the MD of Chorus Hotels a very, very nice man who was struggling with his masters in Kuala Lumpur uh, who thought they were going to make some money out of this uh, and said, look I won't pay your legal fees, you won't pay mine, we will jointly give these to the nation to the National Portrait Gallery and he said, yes, let's do that and we, uh, we met, we had lunch, we banged elbows on it because it was during Covid and they are now safe for the nation 
and I wrote to all the living sitters to say, you have been saved for the nation. I hope you feel good about that. And quite a lot of them wrote back saying, good, including Michael Heseltine and people like that, which was, which was nice of them. So I'm, I'm rather pleased about that. A happy ending to that story. Uh, other questions? Anybody? Uh, quick one. Uh, this is Pete, Pete Sanji. Um, in terms of when you're doing your Guardian work, um, do you have a backup tune just in case uh, the legal team get a bit squiffy with your uh, final well, one? Uh, well, in fact, um, last week, coming up to Remembrance Sunday, I had almost finished the version which actually appeared this Saturday, um, which was the Tories laying wreaths at the Tory Economic War Memorial. <laughs> and, and at three o'clock in the afternoon, they suddenly thought, oh no, my God, it's, pop, it's poppies, it's over. Oh, uh, they'll think we're taking the piss out of remembrance. Oh no, no, you know, I'm not taking the piss out of you, I'm taking the piss out of them kind of thing. But they, they pay me. I said, okay, that's fine. And I, had, I, I pitched another idea, which I then turned around in a, two and a half hours for them. And so they owe me. <laughs> and then when I thought about it, I mean, I, hadn't, I wasn't actually trying to avoid doing anything, but when I thought about the best way to mark the autumn statum, statement, the same image of the Tory Economic War Memorial, and then weeping, because, as as, you know, the Tories are essentially exactly the same as the British High Command in the First World War, a bunch of incompetent fucking clowns who send millions of people into eternal misery, and uh, we should never forget and so I ran it again so yeah basically also occasionally um, very rarely have they pulled the plug after they've said okay occasionally they'll say no but I'll always have another idea very occasionally more frequently a bigger story breaks and then you've suddenly got to change complete tack because the first story means nothing and that bigger story is like um, the death of the Duke of Edinburgh where to their credit, they let me do a quite simple cartoon of him ascending a stairway to heaven before the pearly gates, looking up at choirs of angels and saying, there's a bloody big grouse. <laughs> <laughs> and they ran that, which was nice. And I think he would have laughed as well. So, I think it'd be worth just pausing and remembering a cartoonist we lost this year, Raymond Briggs. Did you know the man? Did you meet the man? I, I, I met him once at a, uh, one of the cartoon awards. He was fantastically bad-tempered. <laughs> he was great. Um, you know, he was, he was receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award. He left quite early because he wanted to get home. He didn't really want to be there, but he was, you know. And I just love the way he said, you know, I don't like children. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. Um, and, and a great, um, actually a, a beautiful artist. That's the thing I, I'm most pleased about this whole draw challenge process discovering all this beautiful art all these people have done um and it would be invidious to mention people um but i'm going to mention joe lawrence actually who is a fantastic fantastic draftsman um and there but there are so many others who've just done extraordinary stuff as you can see, the canapes are now arriving. Uh, I just want to say another big thank you to all of you for coming, for putting your hard-earned money towards getting Rose Gallery published. And a big thank you to you too, Martin. This is the Booking Club podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And thank you to all the artists who've contributed thus far. Thank you.